Hey super friends, my name is Neil and welcome to this episode 64 of the Get Your Comic On podcast. We're here fortnightly-ish to bring you a slice of film, TV and pop culture goodness from our studio direct to your listening devices. I am of course joined by my very own boy Wanda Martin. Say hello Martin. Hello Martin. How are you doing today? Right, Hen, how are you? Happy Sunday. Oh, happy Sunday. <laughs> now, I think we've been away three weeks, which is a total disaster, because it means that we've thrown out the scheduling that was perfect for when the Batman comes out in March. So I'm afraid to tell you, you're going to have to take another three-week break at some point in the near future so that we can catch up to where we need to be. What have you been up to? Nothing. You've been to Paris? I have. How did you know? <laughs> well, I'm thinking about things that we've done since the last time we recorded a podcast. Uh, so, you've been to Paris. That was exciting. It was. It was all right. Just all right? Saw Mickey. Saw, yeah. Saw Jack. Went on some rides. Got very wet. Got very, very wet. Turns out that France can be quite rainy in October. What have you been up to? I went to Paris. You went to Paris? <laughs> Who I, did you see? I saw Mickey. Saw Mickey? Did you get wet? <laughs> I did. It was very rainy. Yep. Went on some rides, explored Paris, saw the Eiffel Tower, ate some pastries, ate a lot of mini sausages. A lot. <laughs> I had a four-day holiday with a free breakfast. What do you, you know, I'm, I'm going to stuff my face. We've been very, very, very busy. Extremely busy. Day jobs are busy. Life is very, very busy. Been to a lot of screenings. A lot of things we can't talk about yet. So I've got a little list of things we can talk about, but not this week and coming up in the future. Got a lot coming up this week as well, which I will elaborate on a little bit later on. So what's coming up in this week's episode? I don't know. I just sat down. Oh, dear. Well, there is so much out there in the world that we are foregoing the usual news section this episode so that we can dive in as fast as possible to a catch-up on things that we've been watching recently. So just to lay out the landscape for you for the next sort of hour, we are going to be talking about Star Trek Lower Decks Season 2. After that, we're going to discuss Marvel's Eternals and Sony Pictures' Ghostbusters. And then we're going to wrap up our what we've been watching recently with Stargirl Season 2, which has just finished streaming on Amazon Prime Video. Then going to give a little shout out to our Patreons out there and mention a competition that we've got running on Twitter at the moment and then we will uh, wrap things up for this episode. So let's dive in with Star Trek Lower Decks Season 2. So the second season of Star Trek Lower Decks is available to stream in full now on Paramount Plus in the US and here in the UK it's available on Amazon Prime Video. The series stars Tony Newsom, Jack Quaid, Noel Wells, Eugene Cadero, Dawn Lewis, Jerry O'Connell, Fred Tatterskiore, Gillian Vigman, Paul Shear, Jessica McKenna, Nolan North, Phil Lamar and Ben Rogers. Season 2 consists of another 10 episodes which pick up directly after the end of Season 1 with uh, Ensign Boimler now serving on the USS Titan with Will Riker and then follows some further adventures of the Lower Decksmen on the USS Cerritos. Fair to say that as large Star Trek fans we were pretty excited for the return of Lower Decks, weren't we? Yes. And we've talked in the past about how this is not maybe the type of animated show that we would normally watch but that we both really enjoyed Season 1 and found it quite a surprise. So, give me your thoughts on Lower Decks Season 2. I enjoyed it. Better than the first season? Better than the first season. I don't know. Equal. Okay. Equal in equal in different ways? Well, that would be equal then, would it? Well, I, I just mean, is it that you enjoyed it for being more of the same, or you enjoyed this for something slightly different? Because I feel this is a bit more cohesive this second season. Yes, it, it was a, a very strong opener yep. and it remained consistent throughout okay so you would just say it was kind of same enjoyment as season one yes okay see for me i felt like season one i enjoyed for all of the the nods to other star trek lore and history uh, and i felt like they were doing a lot of that in season one to try and prove themselves that they were a star trek show and i feel like in this second batch of episodes they've continue to do that but to a lesser degree and been able to focus more on their own characters because they've proved themselves to the to the fan base so i feel like i've enjoyed season two more for the actual season two stories and not just for nods and references and stuff having said that some of the standout moments in season two are connected to uh to other star trek moments um favorite 
sort of references or deep dive moments for you? The Voy episodes. Yeah, so Tom Paris was in season two. There was a guest spot from um, Robert Duncan McNeil, who uh, returned as Lieutenant Tom Paris. So remind me, is he a lieutenant at the end of Voyager, or is he still just an ensign because he'd been demoted? Oh, no, I had to Google this. He is a lieutenant at the end because I think it gets re-promoted. That's good for him. So he reappears for an episode uh, when he comes to visit the Cerritos, as well as appearing as a uh, mysterious... uh, like vision talking ceramic plate but there is some great stuff in there which nods to voyager i think for me i really enjoyed the episode where they were trying to sneak into a starfleet party and on the base that they're on mariner and boimler end up doing a some sort of covert mission where they don't realize that they're smuggling drugs and they think they're smuggling data bubble bath i think that's quite a hilarious moment or which, is it lore well that's the thing one or two of them might have been law uh but that's a that's a funny one because it's sort of it is a reference, obviously, to the next generation, but it's not like it's a thing from the next generation. It's not like Data Bubble Bath existed before. What were some of your favourite moments that were kind of not callbacks to old Star Trek? Because there was a lot that went on. You had um, let's think of some of the other stuff that happened this season. There was the uh, Ferengi trying to round up a uh, illegal sort of smuggling ring on one of the planets and that was a callback <laughs> it's still a callback uh to what the Ferengi were like when they were first introduced what else do we have this season there was a lot of development of the relationships of the characters in different ways to what we saw in season one so finally pairing up uh mariner with tendy nearly forgot her name for a second there rather than doing the usual pairing of um kind of boimler and mariner and then the other two together Favourite moments for you? I don't really have a favourite moment. I just enjoyed it all. I'm trying to remember now how the season ended. It ended on a cliffhanger. Didn't it? Oh, it ended on a doozy of a cliffhanger, didn't it? Did it? Yes. So after... I don't remember any of it now. The end of season one where they introduced the Packleds from Next Generation and made them kind of a, a villain. The, we visited the Packled homeworld, remember, in part of this season... And then that's called back at, in the season finale when the captain is arrested for uh, doing some dodgy dealings on the Packled homeworld. Ah, oh, yes, I remember that. Because the rest of the whole thing where she's going to leave and get a, another job. Another job. Yeah. But then she stays and then they take her out of handcuffs. There is some stuff that slightly confused me in season two. So they brought back the security chief, the Bajoran security chief who died in season one. And there's a running joke that bridge officers will often just return after dying. As if that was something from Star Trek. And to me, that's I don't understand. Because that's not a thing that I remember from Star Trek. Because obviously when Yar died, she died. Yes, there was an alternate universe where she came back. But she didn't just return. I guess Harry Kim died and returned? Yeah. Chakotay died and returned. Did he? When did Chakotay die? There was an episode where he died. He was technically dead, but then he brought him back. A couple of people have died and returned. But I suppose it's interesting because it does happen a lot for bridge officers, but then you never look at it from an ensign or a lower decks person because then it might be in the inner circle that brings them back. Right. I think that was the joke and how you can't ask them because it's a traumatic point in their life. Maybe. That was definitely a joke that went over my head, unfortunately. So other stuff we had going on in uh, Season 2, we kicked off with them completing a second contact on the planet Apagos, which is when um, Ransom gets godlike powers. In episode two, we met Kayshon, who is a massive callback to uh, an episode of The Next Generation, where uh, it was Darmok and Jalad, which was the Picard gets stuck and tries to learn the alien language on a uh, hostile planet. Tom Paris appears in episode three. Episode four was the Ferengi with the Mugatu. The Mugatu is a thing from uh, early Trek days as well. And Embarrassment of Duplas, that's the one that I really like. So that's with the with the data thing. It's where the, the, the B storyline is the Dupla that's on the USS Cerritos that ke- uh, keeps doubling and doubling and doubling until the ship is completely overrun. The Spy Humongous was episode six. So that was where uh, Captain Freeman orders Ransom and Lieutenant Kayshawn to keep a uh, pack-led refugee busy because she thinks that he might be a spy. Uh, is invited to join a group of red shirts and they go about trying to get uh, get promoted. Uh, the red shirts end up not really liking Boimler's methods and they think that he's just a bit of a goofball. 
Then we go to where pleasant fountains lie. So that's where the Cerritos is hailed by Queen Paulana from the planet of Hesperia, a Renaissance-style society uh, from a planet colonized by fantasy enthusiasts. Her, she asks her son, Lieutenant Commander, and Darithio Billups to help fix an issue with the engines on their ship. Don't really remember that one. That's not an episode I can recall having reread the synopsis. In I Excretus, there's friction between the members of the lower decks and senior officers uh, as they are accidentally left behind in space following a repair mission. That's the one where they're all stuck, just stood on the outside of that space station in their suits. And like, they'll be back in a minute. They'll be back. And they don't. Then penultimate episode was called Wage Duj, which is when the Cerritos goes on a 12-hour warp, allowing the crew a day of rest. But Boimler finds himself as the only one uh, that has a lack of a bridge member to spend his time with. They uh, encounter Ransom and his group of friends who are all from Hawaii. That's where Boimler is just basically sucking up as much as possible to try and uh, get himself in with the senior staff. And then the season finale is where the Cerritos actually gets to do a first contact mission. And they bring back Sonia Gomez, who was in two episodes of, I think, the second season of Star Trek The Next Generation. And she is now a captain, which is very nice to see, because the last time we saw her, she was spilling hot chocolate over Captain Picard. Does that refresh your memory a little bit? Yes, I'm suitably refreshed. Very good. Anything from that that stands out to you or anything that you maybe didn't like so much this season? The only episode that I didn't like was the the lower decks on the other ships. Yes, so that was, I think... Is that episode 9 where we did that? It was somewhere towards the end of the season, wasn't it? There was an episode where we jumped between a whole bunch of other ships to see what the lower decks men were doing on each one. What was it about that that you didn't really enjoy? I don't know. I just didn't really like it. I just found it a bit slow to get into. Yeah, because they were all characters that we didn't really know, so you didn't spend a huge amount of time with these people. I thought the Klingons were interesting. I thought that they did a reasonably good job of reflecting each of the different species that we spent time with. So, like, there was Klingon ship, there was the Vulcan ship. I can't remember what the other one was. You remember what the other one was? The Borg... Was there a Borg Lower Decks? Yeah. There was, wasn't there? And then that kind of all pulled together for the end of the episode, didn't it? I thought it paid off well, but took a while to get going, so I I know what you mean there. Now, it's a perfect time for me to mention that if you have not yet caught up with any of Lower Decks, as well as Seasons 1 and 2 streaming on Amazon Prime Video, CBS Home Entertainment is bringing the first season of Lower Decks to Blu-ray and DVD in the UK from the 29th of November. Now, I realise I'm slightly biased because I am a huge Star Trek fan, but the home video releases of these shows have some amazing bonus features. So, Lower Decks has got a exclusive trailer for a film which is teased in the episode uh, of Crisis Point. There is also a bonus feature called Faces of the Fleet, which is a deep dive into the crew of the Cerritos, as well as the producers, writers and cast of the show. There's Hiding in Plain Sight, which is an inside look at canon and hidden Easter eggs throughout the series, including freeze-frame images and insightful commentary from producers, creatives, and casts. There's also what they call the Lower Dictionary, which is uh, an exclusive look at each of the episodes, discussing just a different aspect of that episode. So for episode 101, it's called Joining Starfleet, where the producers and the crew discuss development of season one from storyline to visual artistry. And there's one of those for each episode in the season. So episode two is called Alien Among Us. Episode three is the animation process. Episode four is the main titles. Episode five, art design. Episode six, the holodeck. Episode seven is Division 14. So not everything goes right for Starfleet, and we catch up with Division 14, who is tasked with dealing with all the unexpected mishaps. Episode 8 is called Deck Dynamics, which is a dive into the upper and lower deck dynamics. We've got the music of Lower Decks as episode 109, and for the season finale, it's all in the family. As the debut season comes to a close, fans can take a look at the evolution of the crew and their relationships over the last year, and how Lower Decks fits into the Star Trek family. There's also a full-length animatic and deleted animatics, which are basically a few scenes from other episodes that were were not fully completed and ended up not making it to air. So that is available in uh, stores in the UK on DVD and Blu-ray on November the 29th. There isn't yet confirmation as to when or if the series will come to digital in the UK, so at the moment the only way you'll be able to bring this home is via DVD and Blu-ray. If you want to watch it digitally, you will need to watch it on Amazon Prime Video, which obviously will not come with the bonus features. Anything else that you want to say about Star Trek Lower Decks before we move on? Just watch it if you haven't already watched it, because it's a right good fun. It's a right good fun. Right good laugh. Right royal rump. 
Okay. So next up, we're going to the latest Marvel Studios movie, which is currently in cinemas globally now, and that is director Chloe Zhao's Eternals. This one stars Gemma Chan, Richard Madden, Angelina Jolie, Selma Hayek, Kit Harrington, Kumail Nanjiani, Leah McHugh, Brian Tyree Henry, Lauren Ridloff, Barry Cohen, Ma Dong-Siuk, Harish Patel, Bill Skarsgård, and is written and directed by Chloe Zhao. The film follows a group of immortal beings who have lived on Earth and shaped its history and civilizations for centuries when they are dragged back into... Uh, I guess interfering with human life when the mysterious and evil deviants resurface to try and interfere with humanity and potentially destroy the earth. So this one for me honestly has been a bit of an anomaly. I thought it looked really epic and quite I'm going to say impactful from the trailer because it has an aspect of kind of family which you maybe don't so much get with the Avengers because they spend more time bickering and saving the earth than time spent focusing on their interpersonal relationships. This felt like it was going to focus on the interpersonal relationships with the the kind of saving the earth stuff as a backdrop to it. And so I was quietly excited for it. And I think final product for me just didn't quite land as much as I hoped that it would, which I will discuss more in just a second. But what did you think about this one? It was all right. It was just a bit long. It's very long. So it's two hours and 40 minutes, basically. And it splits its time between trying to build those family or mend maybe those family relationships as well as explaining their history before getting to the kind of superhero action. So do you think it spent too long setting up the characters and not enough time giving them something to do? Or do you think that giving them something to do ended up being the downside of the film. I don't know. I just I didn't really see the point in any of it, really. Okay. They didn't really do anything. And then when they did something, it didn't really make any sense to me. Okay. So let's let's break this down for a minute. So let's just talk about the characters. How do you feel about the actual characters themselves? I don't know. I mean, they didn't really do anything, did they? Well, maybe not about what they... Not their actions, but do you think they were characters who given something to do you would like to see more of i'm not sure if i would okay because so i quite like some of the characters i'm glad that they thinned them out a little bit by the end of the film because you kind of get the sense that there are a few characters who were less um necessary to the story who ended up being written out as it were or Mm. killed off Uh, one or two of those i was quite sad about but um not all of them, shall we say. <laughs> Probably sounds really rude, doesn't it? I don't want to spoil too much for anybody that's not seen it. So it's, I mean, it's really clear that Cersei, which is Gemma Chan's character, is basically our lead. I liked her. She's very well developed. She's given a lot to do. We understand what she did throughout history. We understand what she was doing working at the Natural History Museum. So she's just around the corner from our office. Uh, I felt like she was very well developed. Richard Madden... As Icarus, again, I felt was quite a well-developed character. They put a lot into him. And then there were there were other characters, such as Sprite, who was there, but I don't really know what the point of Sprite was. Yeah, I don't really know. I really like the character of Fastos and kind of what he stands for as a, a bit of positive representation in the MCU, but I felt like he wasn't maybe as fully developed as he should have been, but was well on the way there. Then there were other characters such as Makari, so that's Ro- uh, Lauren Ridloff's character, who was the the sort of deaf speedster. I felt like there wasn't a huge amount of development given to her. And Druig is kind of the same. I thought he was a really interesting character, who I kind of suspected would end up being a villain, who didn't. But then there's some kind of lack of plot development with him that could be interesting in the future. Whereas then I really liked Gilgamesh... Uh, who ended up looking after Thena, played by Angelina Jolie, but his character didn't go in the direction that I thought that his would. And interestingly, I felt like Angelina Jolie ended up being really underdeveloped. But then I felt a lot for her character, given what she was going through. So it was a bit of a mixed bag. And I'm really intrigued by what they did with Salma Hayek's character, Ajak, because my understanding is that she signed like a Samuel L. Jackson 
Nick Fury-sized multi-picture deal. So I'm slightly confused by what that means for the character of Ajax, given where she is in this film. Uh, and then oddly, given that he's not an Eternal or a main character, I felt like there was quite a lot of plot development for Kit Harrington's Dane Whitman. Yeah, I don't understand where he fit into all of this. I felt like he was really conveniently slipped into this film. So I, I have to preface this by saying I haven't read any comics with Eternals in. I also haven't read any comics with Dane Whitman in, so I don't know if the relationship between Cersei and Dane Whitman is a thing from the comics. Maybe that's the inroad here. I don't know. Otherwise, it felt a little contrived how they brought him in for the sake of what they want to do with him next, which is explained in one of the post-credit scenes. So I think it's a mixed bag in terms of characters. I think my biggest issue is similar to you is the story. Well, it was just too long. It was too over-inflated. Nothing really happened. And it was like a mad rush at the end. And I thought, I've just sat here for four days for this. <laughs> I know what you mean. It, there is definitely something that does not cohese in the story. I, I, do, I do genuinely like the family drama. And I think maybe there could have been a more concise version of this story where we learn... I didn't mind them mixing flashbacks and present day. I thought that was fine. But I think there is a more concise version of this story where you get rid of the big mission at the end and instead just focus on the celestial history of these people, how they came to Earth, how they broke up, and how they come back together. And it could easily have ended on, okay, now we have this big Earth-saving mission. And that could have been like a sequel. Yeah, because there was another baddie that was sort of growing and developing, but then didn't really develop into anything. Did we? I've forgotten that already. Yeah, the weird the thing that was sucking all the powers from them. Oh, yeah, the deviants. So the deviants, yeah. yeah, the. <laughs> yeah. So, so we, is... we fill up this story where the deviants were stealing powers and growing and becoming more powerful and sentient, and then. It became well, something else entirely. I've gone down. Yeah. I also think that there's some really bad um, contrivance to the plot in in general because, I mean, the obvious thing that people can say is where were they during Endgame? Where were they during Infinity War and Endgame? Where were they when, you know, when Thanos invaded and wiped out half the universe? And they explain that away by saying it's not our mission. You know, we were told to only deal with the deviants. But then... Which is fine if that's what they were told to do, and that's what they said they they were you know they were told they absolutely had to do, so that mankind could develop the way it was supposed to. Then that's that's absolutely fine. I have no issue with that, if that's how you want to explain it away. But then the whole point of this film is that actually they discover that there's something else going on, which is nothing to do with their mission per se. Which because they love humanity so much, they decide that they're going to get involved with and stop. So, for the convenience of there being films that you weren't in before we decided to introduce you it's okay that you didn't step in but as soon as we have a story for a film that would involve you we're happy for you to step in so the whole thing with Ajax where she was like we won't step in but I love humanity we have to step in I just found a bit weird because I thought well if you if you felt enough to step in about this why didn't you feel enough to step in with Thanos Another thing about because that was old Druid's thing where he went to the mountains to yeah. help and stop all of them. So where was he then? Yeah, so he had left them all because he didn't want to stick to the mission and wanted to help humanity, but also, yeah, didn't. So I don't know. It's definitely very contrived. But then I think my other massive disappointment with it is that it felt like this really huge global epic story. And it is very global. It goes to many, many different countries. But it didn't feel epic to me at all somehow. No. And I still think you can tell a meaningful family story on an epic global scale. Look at No Time to Die. That's a huge movie. Very, very global and still has an idea of family at the core of it. But something, I don't know, something for this just doesn't work. But that's not to say that I didn't like it. I didn't not like it. It just doesn't have enough for me to want me to come back. Yeah. I would... I don't know. I was going to say I would watch the characters in another scenario. I feel like they're, they're going to crop up elsewhere in the MCU now. And that if they were to make a sequel, 
it would probably be very different to this film. Mm. But there's a really sad point to this, which is this is very different for the MCU. This isn't their generic like process of introducing characters. They've actually done something different. And it's not really landed. Although, to be fair, it's doing okay at the box office. But it's, I mean, with reviewers, it's really not landed. So now they'll just go back to using the factory formula because they've seen that when they do something different, it doesn't work. Or will they? I mean, fair play to them if they do continue to branch out because that's what I would like to see. And we've talked about that ethos before with DC, that DC will do something different. And if it doesn't work, they won't just go back to doing something that does work. They continue to experiment, which is nice. And I would like to see Marvel do that. But does Disney have the balls to not just churn out what makes a billion dollars every time? Which I think is a very interesting point. It just worries me that they've experimented and it's not worked and they'll go back in their box. Was there anything that you really did like about this film? No. <laughs> End credit scene? Oh, okay, right. Uh, let's uh, let's preface this. I'm not going to talk about the casting that has leaked. That I mean, plenty of people will have seen this by the time they listen to this podcast, but I'm not going to touch on Thanos's, um brother who is introduced here because I don't understand enough about it and it's just weird. Let's talk about that other post credit scene that focuses on Kit Harrington's character. Was that not something that maybe excites you about some future MCU action? No. Really? Yeah. Even having Blade in it? No. Why? Well, I just don't... It didn't really fit anywhere, did it? It doesn't fit with this, but does it not make you think, ooh, there's a cool dark side to the Marvel Universe that could be coming along here? No. Okay, fair enough. I, uh, I, just, I don't buy that they can do that. No, you don't think they'll manage it? No. Vampires in the MCU? No. Well, I think they'll do it, but it'll be a Marvel version where it'll be really bright and colourful and happy. Oh, well, okay. So, anything else you'd like to say about <laughs> Marvel's Eternals? No. Okay, well, Marvel's Eternals is in cinemas globally now. Uh, if you have seen it and you would like to let us know what you thought about it, then find us on social media at Get Your Comic On on Twitter and Instagram. You can find me at Neil Vag and you can find Martin at Boy Wonder 1989. Let us know whether you enjoyed this film or not, or whether you agree with our opinions. <laughs> Moving swiftly on to Sony Pictures Ghostbusters Afterlife. This film begins hitting cinemas globally from Thursday the 18th of November 2021. It stars Finn Wolfhard, McKenna Grace, Carrie Coon, Paul Rudd, Sigourney Weaver, Bill Murray, Dan Aykroyd, Ernie Hudson, Logan Kim, Celeste O'Connor and Annie Potts. I don't actually know what the official synopsis for this film is, you know. According to IMDb, it's when a single mum and her kids arrive in a small town, they begin to discover their connection to the original Ghostbusters and the secret legacy their grandfather left behind. Now, something tells me this one isn't quite going to get the critical mauling that you gave to Eternals. So, your... critical mauling, did it? Well, you basically dismissed it and said, move on. Did I? <laughs> yeah. Oh. I mean, that's fine. If you didn't like it, you didn't like it. It's uh, just not for me. Yeah, there's, I don't want you to lie and say that you love something when you didn't. So, anyway, Ghostbusters... Tell me what you were thinking about this film before we went in, because I don't think we've covered this one very much on the podcast. Were you anticipating this highly? Were you interested? What were your feelings pre-screening? Mm, I was about like, mm, is it needed? Okay. Can we not make a new film? Yep. And your feelings afterwards? I, I quite enjoyed it. Yeah. Me too. Pleasantly I was interested surprised. to see what they could do with Ghostbusters, and I was excited because it's Jason Reitman, who is the son of Ghostbusters creator Ivan Reitman. So I kind of really wanted to see what he would do with it, having grown up with the franchise as a child. Both he and me, that is. And I was pleasantly surprised. I really, really enjoyed this film. How do you feel about the setup of this film compared to what they did with the the kind of the female fronted Ghostbusters in twenty sixteen? So am I, am I right in thinking that we've just sort of decided that the female Ghostbusters were an offshoot and a different story in a different reality? That's what they've done with comics, yeah. In terms of Ghostbusters comic books, they did a huge crossover event where they brought over like animated version with original movie Ghostbusters and female Ghostbusters. Like it's sort of like a Ghostbusters multiverse, like it was an alternate timeline. Yeah. And this film, interestingly, this film felt like it wrote back to Ghostbusters and almost wrote over Ghostbusters 2 in a way, because they didn't do anything that really referenced Ghostbusters 2. 
No, they didn't, did they? No. And uh, I'm going to say now, there'll be some mild spoilers for this, not some huge spoilers. We don't want to mess the whole thing up because it's obviously not even out yet. But there is a scene where they go through important dates in history and there is a date, there is no date which relates to 2016 Ghostbusters, but there is a date which relates to the first film, no date which relates to the second film. Well, yeah. Again, I'm not suggesting that they're trying to write over Ghostbusters 2 as if it was unsuccessful, but it just interestingly seems to have more ties to the storyline of the original than it does to the sequel. I was... I mean, you don't dislike the female Ghostbusters, neither do I. It's It doesn't feel like a Ghostbusters movie to me, and I've talked about this a bit with some of the other kind of film journalists that I know. It just... It feels like... Saturday Night Live spoofs Ghostbusters than a original Ghostbusters movie to me and I enjoy it for that I don't enjoy it as a Ghostbusters film I don't know what your thoughts are I mean it's I don't know it's it's an alright film it's funny in bits yeah does what it says it's going to do it's a bit of a homage yeah it just it doesn't feel like a Ghostbusters movie so I really appreciated the setup here. I do think there's a lot of nostalgia for the original films and the original cast and aspects of the original film. And I think that may put some people off, do you think? The amount of nostalgia? Maybe. But I do feel like they balance the nostalgia with the new characters and a sort of contemporary spin in it quite well. What do you think? Yes. I think it's an interesting setup. So it's a new story, but it's rooted in the old Ghostbusters lore. Very heavily. Very heavily. Did it tug at the heartstrings? It did tug away, yes. <laughs> you did that on purpose. <laughs> well, it made me cry at the end, I will like to add. Oh, I teared up quite a lot. Tugged quite hard then for you. Oh, for God's <laughs> sake. Back on the matter at hand... Uh, so interesting story and it's difficult to talk about this one without sp- I don't want to spoil anything and I need to choose my words really carefully so I think they've made some points relatively obvious in the the trailer in that the the family that moves to this old farmhouse is related to one of the original Ghostbusters how did you feel about that family connection it was interesting because you didn't really get any of that in the original Ghostbusters but then why wouldn't he have a secret family? Well, exactly. And we don't know how secret they are when they were, when it kind of falls in the timeline. But presumably not long after Ghostbusters 2, the particular Ghostbuster at hand had a family. Hmm. How old? It didn't say how old she was. No, we never really got how old the mum was, only how old uh, the kids were in that he was 16 and she was, so that's Finn Wolfhard's character is 16 uh, and McKenna Grace's character was I think 10 or 11 Hmm. she was younger wasn't she well she was definitely younger I don't know I can't remember now off the top of my head how much younger she was so they they managed to play a little bit fast and loose with the timeline Uh, obviously a Ghostbuster or Ghostbusting actor has passed away since uh, the making of the original films that that was Harold Ramis and his spirit is felt very strongly in this film. Did you think that they did him proud by how they represented him here? Um, I think so. I mean, I don't know him. Not personally, no, no. I don't know how what his thoughts would be on, this, on the matter, but I think it was nicely done. Yeah. Maybe a little bit too much at the end. Okay. I'd like a little bit less, because it was sort of like, okay, you've you've made that point now. <laughs> You really made it now. Let's just move on from that point. I felt like they uh, they went to great lengths to sort of show uh, Bill Murray's remorse for the fact that the two of them fell out and that that's part of the reason why Ghostbusters 3 never happened and that he will never get the chance to kind of make up and rebuild bridges that were burned back in the 80s. Um, over it, I felt like they they really wanted to drive home that there was quite a bond between the four original actors, or in fact five, because Annie Potts was obviously quite a presence in this film as well. And I think they they went to great lengths to to show that. And I guess a lot of that will also come from the fact that this is being made still by the Reitman family. So 
I guess Jason grew up knowing all of that from his dad and wanted to homage that as well. What happened to the other man? The man from Little Shop of Horrors. Rick Moranis? Yeah. Uh, he, he retired from acting almost completely. I think he's been... He is coming out of retirement for something. I feel like they're making a new Honey, I Shrunk the Kids or something and they've managed to coax him out of retirement. Mm. But he basically retired, I think, sort of mid-90s and has not worked since and has basically just been living as normal a life as he possibly can. Uh, so I guess maybe they didn't try and coax him back for this. I mean, Sigourney Weaver isn't really a presence in this. She's on the cast list and it was confirmed months and months ago that she was in it. But uh, it's kind of a weird point, isn't it? Because it, she, her, so I, this is one sort of minor spoiler, but she doesn't appear in the main body of the film. She appears in the end credits. But the film... If you didn't know that she was in it or you had forgotten she was in it, that moment is spoiled for you because at the end of the cast list, it says Anne Sigourney Weaver and you go, uh, what? She wasn't in this. And then boom, there she is. The weave. So that was a bit weird, wasn't it? Uh, yeah, but I liked that as well. I think it was done well. It was a wonderful scene as well. I, I like the scene that she is in. So let's talk new characters for a minute. What did you think of, um, let's start with McKenna Grace. So Phoebe, the sort of lead child character I liked her okay she was quirky <laughs> she was quirky yep I thought she did it well she did yeah she played it really well did you recognise the actress no so she's young Captain Marvel from Captain Marvel she was in an episode of Just Beyond from Disney Plus that you saw me watching the screen for a little while back She's also young Sabrina in Sabrina. Oh, yeah. She's Judy Warren, the daughter of the Warrens in uh, the Conjuring universe as well. She's a talented little girl. She is, yeah. I think a great young lead for this as well. It's difficult to call out an actual sort of lead character because they're all very much an ensemble in many different ways. So next there was uh, Celeste O'Connor who plays Lucky. I felt like she was the one that had maybe the least character development of all of them in this film. I don't know about you. Yeah, she was just sort of there really, wasn't she? Yeah, she was a love interest for Finn Wolfhard's character and that was interesting. And we do get some tidbits of her family history. We understand where she fits into the town and some of that where she might fit into the Ghostbusters as a team. But as much as she was a great character, I just felt like there wasn't as much to her and we weren't given as much to see and for her to do and then that leads us to who I think is probably your favourite who is uh, Logan Kim as podcast he's a very talented little man yeah he is this is only his second acting credit he was also in something called Home Movie The Princess Bride a miniseries which also happens to have been directed by Jason Reitman who directed this film Uh, so I think a bright future for him because he's hilarious Mm. he's not backwards and coming forwards for somebody so young. I don't actually know how old he is, but he is he's very young. Yeah, but so he stands up. The show, right? Yeah, he does. He stands up in every single scene and commands the screen really strongly, which is impressive for somebody of his age. What about adult characters? There's uh, People Magazine's Sexiest Man on Earth 2021, Paul Rudd. What do we think about him in this film? He's Paul Rudd doing Paul Rudd, and he does it very well. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, do you feel like this is Paul Rudd being lost in the character of Mr. Gruberson, or is this Paul Rudd as Ant-Man slash Mike from Friends? Did I get his name right? Uh, and any other Paul Rudd character? Yeah, he's Paul Rudd. But then that doesn't really matter. Paul Rudd being Paul Rudd is still awesome. Yeah. Mr. Gruberson as a character, I think it's quite interesting. He does get a bit of character development. He gets to do quite a bit. I think he's our way into this film as well as an audience. I think there are a few different ways you can come into this film, particularly if you're not a fan. Well, maybe not not a fan, but not intimately aware of the history of Ghostbusters. I think there are a few different avenues to break into this, and he's probably the most accessible one, I thought. So he was, he was really good. And he plays well with the adult characters and the child characters as well, I think. Like, you get the scene where they experiment with the, the ghost trap where he feels almost like an overgrown kid like he fits in with podcast and um with phoebe and then you also get his relationship with callie played by carrie coon which fits into some of the more adult stuff that's going on in the background which perfectly leads me into carrie coon as callie the daughter of one of the original ghostbusters and mother to phoebe and trevor what do you think about her 
Um, I like her. I think she's got a nice bit of character development at the end. Yeah. Yeah. There is quite a nice arc for her, isn't there? Yeah. So that was nice to see. I think she's a good mum. She carried the role well. There's a lot for her to do because obviously where we find her at the beginning of the film, she'd never had a relationship with her father, a.k.a. one of the Ghostbusters. And so she has to try and kind of build a relationship with him, even though he is not a character in this film, per se. His presence is overwhelming. Yeah. But I think that they play it really well. And I think she plays it really well as well. I think the the kind of the, the way she's very defensive about the fact that something has happened in her family, but there is also a lot of history there, I think plays very well. And I, I like her emotional journey from the beginning to the end. I feel like it has a very well-realised arc to it. I would agree. Is there anybody else in the cast that we need to talk about here? I'm not sure that there is. Um, Re- I was about to say, revelation for me that Annie Potts as Janine, the secretary from the original Ghostbusters films, is Mima from Young Sheldon. That blew my tiny little mind, that did. Did not know that whatsoever. She's also the voice of Bo Peep from Toy Story. <gasps> is she? She is the voice of Bo Peep in Toy Story. Well. There you go. Second revelation for you there. How mad is that? She is a chameleon. She certainly is. Brilliant actress. And a nice way to tie this film back to the original Ghostbusters as well, I think. I wanted to talk about um, special effects in this, just because obviously it's a it's not a summer blockbuster, but it's a it's a winter blockbuster. Did you f- yeah? Did you feel like this uh, lived up to the the kind of the special effects that you would want from a Ghostbusters a contemporary Ghostbusters film? Yes, I think there wasn't too much of a reliance on lots of VFX, but there was a nice uh, amount of practical and miniature effects as well. I think you'll find. Oh, you're going there, are you? Yes. So I was going to say the same thing. There is a there's a nice mix of oh, copy me, are you? Yeah. There's a nice mix of VFX for the ghosts, which look absolutely brilliant. There is some practical stuff. There are some huge set pieces. And I am pretty sure that at one point, when um, a character from the original, who I will not name, reappears, there's like a temple. And I think the way that temple appears may well have been a miniature, which is quite impressive. And it just mixed together really well. It was what I wanted. Yes, it was a blending of genres, and again, it harks back to that nostalgic feel of the original film. I feel like you're taking the piss now. Or we're bringing in the old and the new to create something that's rather special. You're plucking words out of the air again. That sounds good, though. (laughs) And then finally, I wanted to touch on the score, because the score, I think, is quite important in in a film like this. Um, How did you feel it stacked up in terms of the score? which is, uh, by the way, is a composer by the name of Rob Simonson, who has worked with uh, Jason Reitman in the past. I mean, I thought it was okay. I thought it was a little bit too much of the old Ghostbusters diddles. Um, diddles? Diddle, you know, like, diddles. Um, but every so often I thought, oh, we don't really do it there. Maybe have something else that's not that. I was glad that there wasn't an over-reliance on the theme tune. The theme tune only appears the once and it's right at the end of the film. So that I felt like we we had to earn hearing the theme tune, which was great. It wasn't just like, a, we're going to slap you in the face with that right at the beginning. And this is going to be like, these are the Ghostbusters. They they had to they had to earn that, which I liked. I have to admit... on a phone and saying, who got a call? <laughs> I'm not sort of intimately knowledgeable on... Uh, the score of the old films, I don't think I've ever really sat down and listened to them on their own. So I wasn't, it didn't slap me in the face that they were recognisable themes, but I guess they were, they were callbacks to that original soundtrack then. Yes. Hmm. Okay. Anything else that you want to say about Ghostbusters before we wrap up? No, I think that's probably it really. Recommendation with one or two thumbs? Oh, um, you know, I'm going to say two thumbs. Well, very good. Two High thumbs and a big tool. <laughs> So Sony Pictures Ghostbusters uh, begins its global rollout in cinemas from Thursday, November the 18th, 2021. Last up for this episode is the second season of DC Comics and Warner Brothers Television's Stargirl. If you're in America, then the season aired on the CW and is available to stream on the CW app. Here in the UK, it streamed on Amazon Prime Video, where you can find both seasons one and two. Season one is also available here on Blu-ray with season two to follow in the coming months. And both seasons one and two are available to purchase on iTunes. 
Season 2 once again stars Breck Bassinger as Courtney Whitmore, Angelica Washington as Beth Chappell, Trey Romano as Mike Duggan, Amy Smart as Barbara Whitmore, Luke Wilson as Pat Dugan, Yvette Monreal as Yolanda Montez, Cameron Gelman as Rick Tyler, Meg DeLacy as Cindy Berman, and adds to the cast this season, I'm going to have to find him, Nick Tarabay as Eclipso, and Jonathan Cake as The Shade. Calippo. Calippo. It's not an ice cream. So season two follows a whole new story. It's subtitled Summer School and kicks off with, uh, I was about to call her Breck, uh, Courtney, calling her by her real name, uh, having to attend summer school in Blue Valley, which is quickly sidelined when uh, the Shade arrives in town, who is then followed by uh, the arrival of the big bad Eclipso. Eclipso. The season consists of 13 episodes. So, unlucky for some. What did you think of season two? I thoroughly enjoyed it. Yep, me too. It was a lovely mix of high school teen drama with mystical superhero happenings at the same time. You're full of buzzwords today. I feel that we are taken on a teen journey, but also development of the wider Justice Society of America. So would you say you preferred this to season one? I feel like you enjoyed it more than you enjoyed season one. I enjoyed series one. I'm, oh, and I'm not saying you didn't enjoy Series 1, but I think you enjoyed this even more. Well, you're just insinuating I didn't enjoy Series 1. <laughs> okay, how do you feel about this in comparison to Season 1? Well, I quite liked it. Um, it's just a continuation of Series 1. Do you feel like it's a continuation, or do you think they built on it? Isn't that what a continuation is? Well, no, I mean, you could say it's more of the same, or you could say it continues to get better. That's what I, I'm trying to gauge your whether you feel like this is it even, getting even better as we go through season two, or if it's just consistent with how much you enjoyed season one. I would say it's like it's a mild crescendo. Okay. We're building. What are we building to? The Justice Society of America. Okay, you think there's still more development to come from the from the society as a team? Yeah, they're not really a. I suppose they still don't feel like a hugely cohesive team, do they? No, they're still learning, they're still growing. Yeah, there was the big fight at the end of season one, and I feel like there is sort of a big fight at the end of season two, but those moments are still individuals fighting at the same time, more than there being sort of a team approach. So I, I get what you mean. I think something that intrigues me is I feel like season two went for this program probably quite dark, and I wonder how people will feel about that. It was very dark, and it's very gruesome. Very, because it's Calippo. I mean, he's very dark. Calypso. What's that? Calippo. No, Eclipso. Stop it. You're making me get it wrong now. It was, and they tackled some really serious subjects, particularly the episode where Eclipso goes after Beth and really goes for the, the sort of the race route. I was surprised and impressed by how it handled that. And I realise that I'm talking about a show that is show, you know, is executive produced and show run by Jeff Johns, and that comes with its own connotations about how you want to talk about race, given all of the Ray Fisher stuff. But ignoring that and focusing on what he's done with this show here, I felt like it was handled really tactfully and really well. Hmm. Well, there's some really heavy storylines in this series, and I think something that hasn't really been picked up on on the by the press as well is the fact that it really tackles child abuse when it comes to the backstory of Cindy Berman's character. Because mm, really they very much tee her up as a villain. And I know you weren't very keen on her. There was the scene out on the football field where you felt like she was camping it up far too much and you said, oh, I don't like her. And then after she gets trapped in the kind of the shadow land and then we see what's happening to her in there and what she's reliving, you really realise that actually what her dad did to her, which we know about from season one anyway, because we've seen her in costume and we've seen her with the blades and everything, is really him experimenting on and abusing his child. Yeah, I really didn't like her the first half of the series. It was very, it was too campy and theatrical. She was just missing a cat and a maniacal laugh. Mm-hmm, yeah. Um, but it really turned when she you know, went into the Shadowlands and came back and we saw that different aspects of the facade that she was putting on. But then I'm interested to see what they want to do with her in season three because it sounds like she's sticking around and I don't quite know how I feel about that. Yeah, I don't, I'm don't. i not a fan of her joining the team. No, so I think we'll probably have to see how that plays out when it comes to season three, which is called Frenemies. Uh, but we'll get to that at another time. Highlights for you then in season two? I think the world building 
Yep. There is a lot of wider world and DC lore in this episode. Yeah. Episode season. I enjoy that. Yep. Any particular sort of characters that you enjoyed meeting this season that we hadn't met before? So we met about the Flash. Yeah. John Wesley Ship came back as uh so not his nineties Barry Allen, but as um Jay Garrick. Which was nice to see. A nice tie. Never explained whether he is the same Jay Garrick from the Flash TV series. Or if this is just another Earth's Jay Garrick that he is also playing. Which was nice. There was it didn't it never felt like it was forcing a connection with other parts, but there was a nice organic connection. Yeah, that was nice. I'm interested to see what happened with Starman mm-hmm. and how he his story has progressed. Yeah. We I think we probably talked about this when we finished season one because of the the kind of the post credit scene in season one, but it felt like we were going to see more of Starman in season two because it seemed to really tee up uh, that John McHale would appear in more of season two, but he actually only appeared in a handful. Well, I wouldn't even call it a handful of episodes. It was only maybe two or three. So maybe the indication now seems to be that he will be in season three more. So perhaps that was the plan for season two, but it wasn't ended up able to be carried off just because of maybe COVID and because he's a very, very busy man. He does a lot of stuff. So maybe he wasn't able to sort of be on set for a prolonged amount of time. So hopefully season three will explore a bit more of the Starman story. Let's just talk about Milo Stein for a second, shall we? Who? The young Eclipso. Oh, the little boy. He is a revelation in this programme. He was bloody creepy, wasn't he? He is absolutely brilliant. His scenes were so creepy. And yes, he's a little child, and it's maybe not too hard to make a little child appear creepy, but he really carried it off well. And he's, in fact, probably... He plays Eclipso more than Nick Tarabay. Like, he's easily in more scenes than the actual fully sort of made-up Eclipso. Did you like that? Um, yes. Would you like to see more of the sort of full Eclipso makeup? Maybe. Ivan Ooze. (laughs) Yeah, he was a bit Ivan Oozy, wasn't he? No, I think it worked out well. What they were doing, he was more sort of sinister as a little child. He was, wasn't he? It was not what I expected, but it worked really, really well on screen. I'm forgetting, of course, that we also had uh, Issa Penarejo as um, Jade, daughter of Green Lantern in this season. Mm-hmm. And she was, a, again, probably a bit less of a presence than I thought she was going to be because she was in it at the beginning and then disappeared for much of the season, but has some strong ties to what they're going to be doing in season three. What do you think of her? I don't know. I mean, you don't really get to see a lot of her, really, do you? No, I suppose we don't have a great impression of who she is. But I think in terms of an introduction, it worked quite well. And there's a trajectory to that story, which seems like it could be really interesting. Was there anything about season two that you weren't a huge fan of? Mm, No. They did some great stuff with um, Solomon Grundy. Yes, again, heart strings were being tugged there. There was some pretty intense stuff around that for Rick Tyler as well, obviously, with his connection to Grundy and how that impacts on, you know, what happened to his parents and living with his uncle, etc., etc. But actually, another thing that I think, because it happened quite early in the season, easily glossed over, is Yolanda's arc this season is quite heavy as well, dealing with the fact that she uh, feels like, you know, she's the only member of the JSA that can kill, having taken out Brainwave last year. That impacts on her really heavily. Hmm. I think a lot of those stories make it make sense that it went to a darker place this year and ends in a much lighter place now to go into season three for Frenemies. Frenemies. With um, Tigress and Sportsmaster moving in next door. Yeah, that'd be interesting. Hopefully more of Artemis as well. I think... So you could kind of argue, if you weren't so much a fan of this season, that it forgot that it is like a... Goonies 80s teen action adventure which it very much was in season one and this showed something much darker and much more heavy but I think still equally as successful but then it seems to remember it at the end and I feel like next year might be a little more comedic and have some more of that kind of fun adventure to it I don't want to say it lost the adventure this year because it it makes sense that things were difficult for them as a consequence to season one but I can also see how you might have felt like it lost the adventure this year. Because it went dark. Yeah. Uh, did I just ask you if there was anything you didn't really like? And did you say no, there wasn't? Yeah, I don't. Okay. I don't think there was anything in particular for me that I didn't really like either. I love that they 
they stuck with the 13 episodes. I hope they continue to stick with 13 episodes moving forwards because it's much more concise. There wasn't particularly much filler this season. Yes, I agree. I prefer a shorter series. Yeah, it works well. Special effects. What do you think about special effects this season? Because they were, it was a marked improvement when it was obviously a DC Universe show and we commented in the past that, you know, it looks much better than, say, The Flash. Uh, and then we've since then had Superman and Lois come along, which is really cinematic in comparison to the rest of DC TV. And so there was obviously concerns with Stargirl being a CW show in the US this season that it would be impacted by that. Do you feel like the CW impacted season two at all? No, I don't think it has. I think they've they've maintained the standards that have been set when it was on DC Universe. I agree with you. I wasn't really concerned. I mean, there was part of me that thought, I wonder if things might change. But the fact that they we knew that they were still going to shoot in in Atlanta, uh, was, I think it's Atlanta, it's Georgia, definitely, where uh, where the set is for Blue Valley. The fact that that wasn't changing, that the the kind of the special effects companies involved weren't necessarily changing, and no one behind the scenes changed. It was purely where you would watch the show that changed. I had high hopes that it would continue to be as it was, and and it completely was. I can't really fault it at all. So I'd say possibly up there with. Superman and Lois as my favourite of the shows on CW this year, I would say. Very good. I think that's all I want to say about Stargirl, unless there's anything else you want to say. Yeah. Again, if you've actually watched season two, get in touch and let us know what your thoughts were on it. You can find us on all the usual channels that I mentioned about 20-odd minutes ago, and let us know what you thought of season two. Which brings us pretty much to the end of this week's podcast. Dun, dun, dun. Dun, dun, dun. I just wanted to shout out to the fact that we have finally pulled our finger out and started creating some cool content for our patrons over on patreon.com forward slash get your comic on. Hello, patrons. Uh, we now have a almost weekly, so maybe I should say weekly-ish, much like I say fortnightly-ish for this podcast, uh, Patreon-exclusive podcast. We've covered a few topics from Fandom through uh, the 2011 Wonder Woman pilot. This week we were talking about the uh, upcoming first issue of DC Comics Batgirls. So that podcast is, uh, well, at the moment it's only been me, but the idea is that it will be a different member of the team every now and then who will drop in to do a five to ten minute podcast exclusive deep dive on a topic of their choice. Everyone has suggested that they are interested. It's just I'm the only one that's actually recorded anything so far. Will you be joining us for an episode? Will you do an episode? Me? Yeah. I don't know. Just you and a microphone for five to ten minutes talking about a subject of your choice? When I do that every day. <laughs> this is true. We also have done a couple of video diary entries. So this week we were at a special UK fan screening for Marvel Studios and Disney Plus's Hawkeye. You can follow us on a little video diary, which is available on Patreon now. I'm not doing a hard sell, but if you would would, would like to subscribe, then it's patreon.com forward slash getyourcomicon. I also need to mention that we have a really awesome competition running at the moment over on our Twitter, which is at GetYourComicCon. We are currently, or should I say up for grabs right now currently, from our friends at Funimation UK and celebrating the cinema release of My Hero Academia semicolon World Heroes Mission. We have 10 headsets to give away over the next uh, couple of weeks. I think we might be saving a couple for when the Blu-ray comes out next year. But basically we have a stash of... HyperX Cloud 2 USB headsets to give away. They are My Hero Academia branded for any of you anime fans out there. And they are 7.1 surround sound virtual head uh, headphones, which also have a microphone and a USB sound card controller, which is like a massive control that's on the cable that lets you do plenty of wonderful things. You have been using a set that were gifted to you. How are you finding them? Oh, they're wonderful. It's a sound revolution in my ear holes. Amazing. So they came from the wonderful team at Funimation and are available on our Twitter for you to enter and win between now and the 27th of November. All of which leads me to talk about what might be coming up in a couple of weeks' time when we come back. I made a list. So there's Hawkeye, which Ooh. will be premiering on Disney Plus on November the 24th. We've seen episodes one and two, but we are strictly under embargo on reviewing them. We can, however, react. What is your reaction? Ooh. My reaction is, oh. Uh, we've also got series two of The Morning Show, which I had actually tabled to talk about this episode. But I figured we're releasing this with only one episode to go, so we might as well wait until the next one to talk about season two as a whole. We've got Doom Patrol season three, which we need to finish. 
We've also got Dope Sick, which is premiering, uh, well, has premiered the first two episodes this week on Disney Plus Star. We've been able to watch a few episodes of that. We've also got The Wheel of Time, which is a brand new Amazon Prime fantasy series starring Rosamund Pike. We went to a special screening of episode one last week and are now attending the world premiere uh, What tomorrow as we're recording this or yesterday as you're listening to this at London's BFI IMAX, which again is under embargo, so we can't talk about that at the moment other than reaction. What's your reaction? Uh, ooh. <laughs> and then I'm also this week going to see uh, Warner Brothers' King Richard, which is the story of uh, Venus and Serena Williams starring Will Smith, which is tipped for Oscar glory next year. So we shall be talking about that maybe as well. It's quite That's quite a list of things already. Uh that's on top of anything else that we might watch in the meantime. All of which uh, leaves me to say thank you for tuning in. Don't forget to like, subscribe, share, all those wonderful things that you can do on the interwebs these days. So stay safe, stay well, and until next time, bye! bye.